in terms of buying nitrogen, I would be first of all focusing on using protected urea, but also then I would be ensuring that when they're buying their fertilizer for the first half of the year and for their silage ground, ensuring that they have enough sulfur factored in so that they can apply up to 15 units of sulfur over that April to June period for grazing ground. I'm Stuart Childs and you're welcome to the Dairy Age, the Chagas Dairy Podcast. We're bringing you latest information, insights and opinion to improve dairy farm performance. As part of a midterm review of the nitrates derogation, a further 10% cut in chemical nitrogen allowances is being strongly tipped as a new measure to be introduced in 2024. That will reduce fertiliser allowances to approximately 200 kgs per hectare or 160 units per acre. This level of nitrogen will not only have to be managed carefully, but will have to deliver effectively for farmers. The efficiency of fertiliser applications will be very important. So today I'm speaking with Dr. William Burchill, FBD lecturer in soil science in University College Cork. I started by asking William to explain the concept of whole farm nitrogen use efficiency and how it differs from nitrogen use efficiency in relation to fertiliser applications. In terms of whole farm nitrogen use efficiency, look, it is a new metric out there in terms of, I suppose, guiding, guiding us as to you know, how efficiently or how effectively any individual farm is actually utilising nitrogen on their farm. When I say nitrogen, that could be from in the feed, some form of feed or in fertiliser. So look, basically what it does is it, it looks at the amount of nitrogen that comes into the farm via the farm gate. So what comes in in the back of a lorry, what comes in in the fertiliser lorry, what comes in in the feed lorry, you know, depending on the crude protein of the feed. That'll they'll have the higher levels of nitrogen in the feed where there's higher crude protein. And also if you're purchasing stock, nitrogen actually comes in and into the farm via the nitrogen in the stock and stock stock as well. So you can look at what comes in and then there's a lot of cycling of nitrogen within the farm. And then we can ultimately look at then is the actual amount of nitrogen that leaves the farm in products such as milk and then actually in sale of stock as well. So like when we when we work that through in general, the figure that we see on the ground at the moment from a national point of view for, for dairy farming is around 25% nitrogen use efficiency. So basically what that's, what that's saying is that of all the nitrogen that comes into the farm through the farm gate, only about 25% of it actually leaves the farm then in terms of um, nitrogen being sold. So, you know, it's, the efficiency is... Um, is 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 at twenty five percent nationally now, and our, our target, long term target, really was to try and improve that to up to thirty, thirty five, forty percent nitrogen use efficiency. And you know, again, we kind of spoke about that. There's another another aspect of nitrogen use efficiency on farms. It's actually the the whole area of um, nitrogen fertilizer use efficiency, the fertilizer itself. That probably has probably the biggest bearing on the nitrogen use. Of, whole farm nitrogen use efficiency of a farm. So again, you know, nitrogen fertilizer can account for up to about 80% of the nitrogen coming onto our farm. So it's important that we consider this. Yeah, so you mentioned the feed protein percentage and so forth, and that's subject to some discussion at the moment in relation to maybe having a potential impact on nitrates on farm as well. So we'll leave that aside for today because we'll probably pick up on it in due course in the next number of weeks anyway. So we're going to concentrate on the fertilizer piece. As you said there, William, 80% of the nitrogen use efficiency is, is kind of falling out the bottom of depending on 
the nitrogen fertilizer usage on the farm and so forth. So if we can reduce the amount of nitrogen that we're using on the farm and get a better return for the nitrogen that we actually use on the farm, then that nitrogen use efficiency can improve. So tell me, like, what actions can farmers take to improve the efficiency of the nitrogen that they spread? Yeah, so there's the main the main thing I think that sure that people need to think about is um first of all, given given the limits that are coming in on nitrogen fertilizer, we have to utilize every single bag of fertilizer that's spread and every load of slurry that leaves the yard in the spread, we're gonna have to make good effective use of that if we're in order if we're if we're going to be growing our are 12, 13, 14 tonnes of grass. You know, nitrogen is going to start become to become limited now, um, given the 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 change in limits that are, that are coming in. So, like one concept that I like to talk think about when I'm trying to use nitrogen fertilizer effectively is I think what's called the four R's of efficient fertilizer fertilizer use. So that's the getting fertilizer right in terms of the right type the right place, the right timing, and also the right low, the right um, the right rate as well in terms of applica- applying the fertilizer. So if we just talk about like the right type, you know, and in this now, especially given this time of the year, like what I'd like to kind of work through is maybe like a shopping list for fertilizer for 2024 and, you know, what needs to be done and what needs to be considered this time of the year because often... We start talking about this in the middle of next year. You know, the chip might be sale, the fertilizer is in the yard and we can't change what's in the yard. So like, you know, in terms of the shopping list for going out, um, getting quotes for fertilizer and purchasing fertilizer now for the, for the springtime in the first half of next year, in terms of the type of nitrogen, look, it, it has to be protected urea, you know, especially in, in terms of a cost point of view. It's um, a lot cheaper than canned fertilizer. And also as well, from an efficiency point of view, protected urea is a, is a lot less prone to ammonia loss compared to normal standard urea. Like normal standard urea, you could typically lose 10 to 30% of that after applying it. So using protected urea safeguards against that. And again, it's ensuring that every grain of fertilizer is going to be worked into the soil and it's going to have a lot less chance of being lost. Um, the protected urea and then like in terms of products with protected urea I think it's also really important that farmers consider using um, potassium as well um, like after nitrogen potassium is by far the the second biggest nutrient that our grassland requires to, for, for, for optimal growth and like potassium is really strongly linked with how efficiently the nitrogen that was applied is actually taken up and utilized by our grass wards. So potassium is very important. Another element as well, and it's often one that's forgotten as well, is um, using sulfur as well and ensuring that we have are purchasing our nitrogen with some level of sulfur in it, particularly for that April, May, June time of the year. We need sulfur in our fertilizer products at that time of the year particularly on our lighter soils. And just just to give an example of that, there's some recent work that has found almost, a, you know, almost an extra quarter or an extra 25% increase in grass yield 
when they applied nitrogen with sulfur versus applying just straight nitrogen. And that was on kind of on a very sandy loam, dry soil type. So there's particular parts of the country on these dry soils, sandy soils, that will get a significant boost in efficiency of their fertilizer when they apply um sulfur. Also as well, um look as well and this definitely definitely comes down to soil sampling as well. Um is if there's a requirement for phosphorus, you know, that the phosphorus needs to be included. You know, whether it's bought a straight sixteen percent super P or eighteen six twelve products like that, but phosphorus needs to be included if the soil samples and if the nutrient management plan is showing an allowance for phosphorus and a requirement for phosphorus. And like ultimately like when you when we look at this and there's some there's a lot of work in the last number of years looking at how we can improve the nitrogen use efficiency and like one thing we kind of have to think about is we can't think of nitrogen in isolation if we want to get improve nitrogen efficiency we have to get p right we have to get k right we have to get the sulfur right and we have to get the lime right as well so you know and even some recent work has known like on you know even out on dairy farms they found that you know paddocks that have you know, suboptimal soil fertility, you know, maybe poor for lime, poor for pea, poor for K, they may only be getting a nitrogen efficiency of, of maybe a third of the nitrogen that they applied, maybe 33%. Whereas if you correct and everything's right, if the soil pH is right, P's and K's are under optimal indexes, you know, we could actually effectively double that efficiency to get up to 66, 70% efficiency of the nitrogen fertilizer. So, these are things that we can't ignore now, given the restrictions that are coming on on chemical nitrogen. And just to um, come back to that now, so at the at the start there, we spoke about this twenty five percent being the current performance level on the whole farm basis. What's what's the actual upper level of this nitrogen efficiency from a fertilizer point of view, as opposed from a whole farm point of view? Just so that people are clear in terms of what they can expect to achieve here. So you said that we could be as low as 33% there where soil fertility is offline, but where it's correct, then is there such a thing as 100% effectiveness in terms of nitrogen fertilizer efficiency? There, There is, George, yeah. Like, you know, especially when we're applying fertilizer during the summertime, when we're getting optimal growth conditions, you know, you can get efficiencies up to 100% at that time point during the year. But kind of on average across the year you might be talking somewhere close to 70 75 percent you know when you've got optimal soil fertility you know because you know you might get slightly higher efficiency during the summertime then as you move back into early spring the efficiency mightn't be as strong or in late autumn the efficiency mightn't be as strong but on average you'll be talking around kind of 70 percent efficiency when the soils are optimal but then if they're not optimal you know, you're talking about significantly lower levels than that. Okay, so William, the I suppose the easiest nutrient to address for everybody will be the pH piece, right? So you can kind of you can spread lime at any stage of the year. So if the weather conditions were right there over Christmas, even um, or over the next number of weeks, people could go ahead and spread lime where it's needed. Uh, K, as you said, they're a hugely important element. Um, and easily manipulated, I suppose, to a certain extent in terms of it moves up and down quite quickly, so we can address it very quickly. But the the likes of phosphorus uh, levels, 
not so easily manipulated. So does that kind of consign us to defeat effectively if we happen to have index 1s or index 2s for P? Or can we, by supplying the P either in the form of slurry or obviously if we have index 1s and 2s, we're going to have, we should have an allowance for P. Um, if we apply that kind of in reasonable proportions, uh, does, can we achieve that high level return for it as assuming we put it in, if you know what I mean? Yeah, and like like you said, Stuart, look, phosphorus is very different to potassium. It can it can move. It's usually a lot slower to move and build indexes, particularly if you have heavy soils with a lot of clay content. There can be a lot of phosphorus, I suppose, absorbed in the soil before you can see before you see a, a lift in the actual P index that you take a sample for. But look, in 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 every case, I think. What you need to be doing is if you are low in index, you just have to start somewhere, you know, and basically, basically, look, whatever your nutrient management plan is telling in terms of the amount of phosphorus that you can supply, ensure that you purchase that amount of phosphorus. Often you will find cases where people won't buy their full their full allowance of phosphorus. And also as well, I suppose, what we need to do there as well is ensure that we are targeting Slurry to the appropriate areas, um, in particular, and if, if at least if you do that and apply your full allowance, and apply your slurry to your lower index ground, at least then you can say that you you you've done everything that you physically can do to ensure that phosphorus won't limit growth. And I suppose another thing we need to remember as well is that. Like nitrogen and potassium are the big two in terms of actual herbage yield as well. Sometimes we can, phosphorus is obviously very important, but nitrogen and K are the two big ones that are in terms of the quantities that are required for grass growth. So can you just uh, maybe give me an idea maybe of the quantities of K that are required, William? Yeah, so like, you know, for every ton of grass dry matter that you grow, that will typically take up around 33 kilos of nitrogen, about 3.5 kilos of P, and about 25 kilos of K. So you can kind of see, like, the picture that's forming there, like, the amount of K you take up is not that far behind nitrogen, whereas the amount of phosphorus you take up is could be almost almost 10 times lower than the amount of nitrogen that you take up. Um. And one thing as well that has come in in recent years, you know, is when, when people have been restricted on the amount of phosphorus that they can use, ultimately what has happened is that people stop spreading compounds and that K isn't going out. Do you know what I mean? So that's that's kind of um, a knock-on effect of that, unfortunately. So, yeah, look, I think that they're, they're very important. And like you mentioned as well, Lyme, um, Stuart, and... Again, like some of the previous and old work that's been done on Lyme has shown that like where you correct soil pH, you can actually release up to 80 kilos of nitrogen per hectare from the soil organic matter. And I can put that into old old money. Like that's, that's up to two bags of a 46% um, protected urea product per acre per year. Like it, it's an enormous quantity of nitrogen that can be released from the soil where Soil, soil pH is actually corrected to optimal levels and another thing as well is that um, you know generally for grasslands we're saying a soil pH of 6.3 to 6.5 is optimal 
But, you know, for a lot of farmers in the last number of years are trying to incorporate clover. And, you know, clover probably is at that 6.5 bracket, maybe even a little bit with it. So, you know, I kind of encourage people to go back and look at their soil samples now this time of the year, pull them out. There might be new soil samples being taken as well. And, you know, if they see their soil pH is at 6.1 or 6.2, and they say, sure, look, that's not that far away from 6.3. But, like, in reality, if they do want to try and get the maximum use of their nitrogen and maybe are thinking about adopting clover, they need to be aiming for close to 6.5, like, or maybe even, maybe even a unit or two above that as well. So, you know, in some cases they might have thought they were at 6.2 and were okay, but they, you know, the still line probably needs to be applied there in those cases. And I suppose, William, what comes up often when we talk about that is like people get concerned about molybdenum and the risk associated with taking pH too high potentially on the farm. What's your way of dealing with that? Like, I mean, do you really want to drive with the handbrake half on as such in terms of your grass growth potential because of that? Or do you just let it off and try and deal with it outside of the, the zone of soil fertility, we'll call it? Yeah, yeah. And look, again, like, you know, molybdenum is only an issue on, um, in certain areas of the, of the country as well. And a lot of farmers at this stage will know know themselves whether they have high molybdenum soils or not. And, you know, what's effectively, what's the reason why people would be concerned about molybdenum, high molybdenum, is that when you increase the pH on these soils, it can lock up copper. But effectively, what a lot of those farms are doing is they're just supplementing with a little bit of extra supplemental copper via maybe licks or boluses. And that's getting around that issue. And then they're continuing to increase their pHs, increase their dry matter production and getting around it that way. And it's probably the most economical way to get around it as opposed to being playing this massive penalty in terms of reduced grass growth just because you're trying to manage molybdenum. Okay, William, you mentioned clover there now. What what role does clover have to play in um, the whole farm uh, NUE piece then, we'll say? Because obviously it's going to reduce the amount of fertilizer coming in, but it's producing nitrogen as well. So how does that stack up, we'll say, in terms of the whole farm nitrogen use efficiency piece? So in terms of clover, so clover will fix fix its own nitrogen and essentially... It's this, it's it's making the same form of nitrogen that is applied every every day in day out in terms of our chemical nitrogen fertilizer. So we can use clover to replace chemical in fertilizer, and in essence, that's you know can allow us to reduce the quantity of chemical fertilizer that we're purchasing, reduce our input costs. But from a, a whole farm nitrogen use efficiency. Um, clover will um, fix nitrogen from clover is the same as chemical in fertilizer so it's not in essence really going to improve our overall nitrogen use efficiency because we're just substituting one type of nitrogen with another but one thing that nitrogen use efficiency doesn't take into account is that if we can swap fixed nitrogen from clover with chemical fertilizer, we will actually get a massive credit in terms of emissions from agriculture. So nitrogen that's fixed from clover does not have any um, 
nitrous oxide or ammonia emissions associated with it. Whereas the second a, a ship lands in the port of Cork or lands in the port of Dublin with chemical fertilizer, the second that fertilizer is landed in the port, you know, there is a factor applied to it and it's, it's contributing towards the, I suppose, greenhouse gas and ammonia emissions from Irish agriculture, agriculture every year. It's kind of a double-pronged approach, so if we can reduce the nitrogen because of using the clover, we obviously get the benefit there, but also the fact that the nitrogen that we've now taken out and replaced with the clover has no emissions associated with it because it doesn't produce those emissions. We're obviously onto a, a double win in, 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 by virtue of bringing the clover onto the farm as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I suppose just to sum it all up then, William, um, and again, I suppose we'll just... We've kind of drifted, I've, dri- I've drifted back in, I won't blame you for that one now. I've drifted back into the whole farm piece there, we're talking about the clover again. But if we just come back to the fertilizer piece, so people, maybe not now in the next week, obviously Christmas time and so forth, um, people will be taking it easy for a couple of days, hopefully. Um, but after that, people are going to be starting to make phone calls about fertilizer and so forth. So what? just to sum it up, what's the what's the way to approach this for people again? So... What do they need to have before they buy fertilizer for the coming year? So look, the first thing really is um, an up-to-date set of soil samples. Um, knowing what P's and K's and indexes they have already, what's the pH of their soils. Then what I would do is, in terms of buying nitrogen, I would be first of all focusing on using protected urea. But also then I would be ensuring that when they're buying their fertilizer for the first half of the year and for their silage ground, ensuring that they have enough sulfur factored in so that they can apply up to 15 units of sulfur over that April to June period for grazing ground. They'll also have to factor in uh, applying up to 15 units of sulfur for first cut silage as well. And also... If they're buying a lot of their fertilizer to start of the year, uh, around 10 units of sulfur for a second cut um, silage ground, okay? So making sure that they've purchased enough sulfur, um, using protected urea also as well, where there's a requirement for phosphorus based on the nutrient management plan and their allowances, making sure that they have phosphorus there. And phosphorus is particularly important, you know, to be applied First of all, in that kind of late March, early April period, so making sure that they have enough phosphorus there for around the phosphorus at that time or on the paddocks that require it. And also then, you know, as you go into like maybe once you have your sulfur done, then from from May, June period, once you get into July, August, I would maybe have something then with a bit of potassium in it. And the reason why I'd be timing that there for that time of the year is that, um, first of all, um, there's a less a risk of um, grass tetany around this time of the year. And also as well, you know, anecdotally, um, potassium is actually strongly linked to, I suppose, helping the plant getting through periods of kind of dry weather or stress, stress through to drought. So having a little bit of potassium in with your nitrogen fertilizer can actually help grass growth, you know, in these kind of slightly drier periods of the summer that we've been experiencing the last few years. So that's a major one then in terms of the potassium. And also as well, look, I would just ensure that um, 
people are going back now and looking at their soil pHs and ensuring that, okay, is it adequate for grass growth? But maybe the next step they need to look at it, is this adequate in terms of a pH level to get clover adopted, a, a clover established um, on their farms as well. And the very final thing I would say, Stuart, is if people haven't done it already, is um, to look at testing their slurry um, this springtime as well to ensure that they can maximize the nutrients uh, from within their slurry tanks. You know, there's a, a free available source of nutrients that's on every farm every year and testing it can help you to get to maximize its benefit. Yeah, and often they can be uh, higher than people actually think. So by adjusting around the, the numbers, people can get better value from the slurry that they actually have on the farm or on the flip side of it obviously if it's less than what you think obviously you're not getting the nutrition that you feel you're, you might have been getting from it so a very important point and I suppose William that's uh, is that something that people should be doing on an annual basis or if things are pretty consistent on the farm is a uh, once every couple of years good enough to test the slurry or what's your thinking on that? I think um, sure once things are staying relatively constant in terms of the same type of stock do you know what I mean that the, the construction or design of the shade or Water in, entering the entering the tank um is about it remains kind of similar. I think a test every three four years would be adequate. Like and you know best steps in terms of taking a slurry sample is to to do it the first time to agitate the tank. You know the first time you're going spreading the slurry, agitate the tank very well. Maybe suck up one or two loads of slurry, have them spread. Then maybe the third or fourth load of slurry you spread, literally have a bucket at the back hatch of the tank and get a bit of slurry into the bucket fill a container about half liter container of slurry and then it can be it can be posted into you know any of the soils labs any of the labs that, that test for soil samples across the country or obviously just send it into your talk to your local chagas advisor as well and they'll be able to just inform you and instruct you as to where where you could send it and you know you know a lot of people have made good decisions in terms of you know, upping the rate of slurry application or reducing it based on the nutrient contents. And as well, a lot of farmers, what they have done, would have done when they were going out to the tall was to sample two or three different tanks across the yards. And they were they were very surprised as to the, the actual variability in the nutrients across the different tanks within their own, within even their own one single farmyard. And, you know, invariably what, what they've been doing then is um, the tanks with the highest P and K value They've been holding that and keeping it further silage ground, where the more dilute slurry with a little bit less P and K in it, they've been kind of holding that and using that for um, raising platform. And again, when it's more dilute, there's kind of less contamination and, you know, cleaner sward as well, which is an advantage in that respect also as well. Very good, William. So we've uh, covered a good bit of ground there and uh, some very good points there. So effectively, testing is the starting point for everyone know what you need buy what you can uh, what you're allowed to buy and and put it where it's supposed to go effectively is the, the summation of our last 25 minutes so um thanks for coming on today wish yourself and your family and, and all associated with you a happy christmas and all the best for 2024 and we'll see you in the new year thank you perfect thanks very much George. that's all from this week's episode of the dairy edge podcast and my thanks to william burchill for joining me on this week's show don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast you can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Stuart Giles, and join us next time for your Dairy Edge.